Welcome to Blackbird, episode number 84. My name is James, and today I am pleased to speak with Kyle Anzalone. Kyle is, of course, the host of a couple of foreign policy-related podcasts, along with an editor at antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute. Given that Russia has invaded Ukraine in the last couple of days, I wanted to get someone who is well-educated and able to speak to this topic with some air of authority because I am completely clueless and I know that it's super important. And also, it's just sort of the topic of the day. As you know, I try to keep current events separate from Blackbird, but this seemed important enough to do an entire episode on. You will notice if you're watching the video version of this interview that my audio is kind of screwed up for the first like 10 minutes or so. Just try to bear with me. It does sync up a couple of minutes in. If you are listening to the audio version, you will not notice anything weird. And so with that, here is my interview with Kyle Anzalone. Kyle, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, James. I think this is your first time joining me. I know I've had Scott on once, but I think this is actually your first time on Blackbird. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself so that folks who aren't familiar with you can get familiar with you. All right. Um, I'm the news editor at the Libertarian Institute. And so if you go to that page every day, it's myself and Will Porter writing articles uh, in the News Roundup and blog section. And then at antiwar.com, I'm the opinion editor. So if you check out the viewpoint section, and then I do write some news for antiwar.com occasionally. And I'm also the co-host of the Conflicts of Interest podcast. Between that show and my previous show, I've done well over 700 episodes now. So uh, I've been doing this foreign policy stuff for a while. Nice. Yeah. I actually, <laughs> I didn't know how to find you like online. This was a couple of years ago when I, 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 it was the, when I first discovered your old show anyway, I liked it. I liked it. So like, I liked it better than Scott's show for the analysis anyway. And so I like randomly stalked all the Kyle Anzalones on LinkedIn to try to find you because I didn't even know what you looked like. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we found each other on Twitter at least because because uh, I sent a really awkward message to some dude. I was like, "Hey, are you the Kyle Anzalone with the Foreign Policy Podcast?" And he was like, "No, but I'd like to know about all the other Kyle Anzalones." So I sent him a link. You might have a listener who might even be listening to this. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but he's a complete stranger, and that's because I randomly messaged him on LinkedIn. Uh, so let's get into the important well, stuff. Well, uh, just for that, yeah. I do only have Facebook and Twitter. And uh, if you want, like, Twitter's the best place to reach me, Kyle Anslone underscore. I, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. So you feel free to hit yeah. me up there if anybody is interested. All right, sweet. Uh, and we'll put links to all of that in the show notes as well. In fact, they might already be there on the YouTube. So what what happened last week? So, yeah, so like, Mid to late last week, there was a pretty big uptick in fighting in Ukraine. And this wasn't, you know, Russian forces. This was the uh, combatants in the Ukrainian civil war, uh, the separatists in the Donbass region, uh, which is made up of two republics that Russia now recognizes as independent states, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. And then there is, you know, the Ukrainian military and militias and everything fighting against it. And the U.S. 
that's the Ukrainian side and Russia bats the uh, separatist side. And that's been the case going back to 2014. So that fighting really started to heat up late last week and had some of the most significant violations of uh, what's called the Minsk Protocol or the Minsk II Agreement. And this was the ceasefire agreement going back to 2015 that established a line of control and some rules along the Donbass region. And so, you know, there's international observers there from the EU. Up until two weeks ago, there were American observers there and they got withdrawn. And uh, for Russia, this was a big deal. They were pretty upset about it. Their ambassador said that they thought this was a sign that the Americans were trying to do something. So it's not exactly clear, I guess, how the fighting broke out in the Donbass. Some of the statistics I read suggested that the uh, separatist side actually received more of the brunt of the fighting than uh, the Ukrainian government side, but I can't officially confirm that. But I, I, everybody assumes, I guess, that you know Russia prodded the separatists to attack the Ukrainian army to give a pretext for a war. I don't think that's been clearly established yet. And some of the actual, like you know, evidence of you know where the shelling was going on at the time, and again with international observers there. Uh, suggests that quite a bit of that shelling was going on in into the Russian bad Donbass region. Uh, but for whatever, you know, however that started, the end result is that um, Russia gets a request from the leaders of the Donbass and they say, we want independence recognized by Russia. This is something that Russia did. And I don't know if they did in 2008, it might have been like in 2009, but there was a, a war in Georgia in 2008, and they were recognized the uh, Republic of South Ossetia as independent from Georgia, and so and that did more or less resolve like the fighting. You know, there's Russian soldiers there still; they call them peacekeepers, but you know, they're just soldiers that you know prevent the Georgian army from invading South Ossetia and stuff like that. So, I think uh, late last week, people kind of thought that was maybe going to be uh, what was going to happen, uh, but then. Thursday, I believe, at least Thursday in Ukraine, uh, Thursday morning, I guess, uh, Russian stripes started to hit Ukraine. And uh, it was pretty clear that Russia was going to move troops into Ukraine and not just like in what is considered the historic Donbass, like in eastern Ukraine, but also mm-hmm. uh, they've moved on the capital city and some cities in the south. And, and just, so, just real quick to get the geography down. So the eastern part of Ukraine, is that the part of Ukraine that abuts Russia? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So the Donbass region abuts Russia, but it's not like the whole Russian-Ukrainian border either. It's just a right. part. It's a long border. Like if you look, Ukraine's a large country. Mm-hmm. And so it's a long border that it shares with Russia. And it's not, you know, a straight line either. So... Yeah, there's a there's a lot of mileage on that border, and just part of it was controlled by uh, the the Russian bad separatists. Now, if uh, if you look, there's a couple of sites that are doing a decent job. I like Live Viewa map, and they have like you know where the Russians have advanced to. They've made some pretty significant gains into Ukraine. Uh, it seems that they've hit. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but they have made gains towards the capital city of Kiev pretty quickly in the first 24 to 48 hours. And it does seem that the pace of those gains has declined over the second 48 to 24 hours of this conflict. Although, you know, there's multiple reasons for that, right? It's not necessarily that they've hit staunch Ukrainian resistance. It could be that they're resupplying, that they're moving different troops in, 
Uh, there's a lot of reports that Russia logistically isn't doing maybe a great job that, you know, you see tanks that have run out of gas on the roads and things like that. So I guess there's so much of the actual fighting that's unclear. There's so many false reports. But, it, you know, just from looking at the videos that can be concerned, it, it, it's pretty clear that there's been hundreds, if not well into the thousands of deaths at this point. Some civilian casualties, I, I, I've seen the number of casualties, so that's dead and injured, placed in the hundreds with the number of dead from what was described as airstrikes and shelling at 25. But, the, you know, these things are going to take a while to come out. Um, my guess is that, you know, Russia will put out numbers, Ukraine will put out numbers, the UN will put out numbers, and they'll all be different. So I'm hoping that, you know, uh, some international groups like ACLED or Air War steps in and starts to try to monitor here and could uh, maybe, you know, give some less biased information. I mean, everybody's got their bias, but the, the, that information is certainly better than whatever the ministries of defense and Department of Defense will end up putting out. So, yeah, the, I mean, lots of questions. I guess one thing that seems clear is that I think there's a lot of concern when Russia started striking Ukraine that this was going to be a they essentially carpet bomb all the military installations. And then, you know, they move their tanks in and wherever their tanks at any kind of resistance, they just bomb, right? It seems pretty clear that that is not the case, that Russia is at least attempting not to just use the air war as the primary weapon. And they definitely sustained some losses on the ground. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, again, seems that they probably could have done less so. Not, and I'm not trying to say like, oh, you know, Putin's some great humanitarian that's just trying not to kill civilians. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this is a country on Russia's, that shares a very long border with Russia, mm -hmm. uh, very deep historical ties with Russia. And so, I, you know, I do think that there are probably some reasons that he is looking uh, less at the air war and just carpet bombing Ukraine to take the capital city. So let's go back in time a little bit. What is the sort of genesis of this conflict? Maybe not literally the genesis because we could go back hundreds of years. I mean, maybe just in the last, say, dozen years or so. Well, so yeah, Ukraine becomes like its own state after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, I think, important to mention too that Ukraine's been a part of Russia since the Russian Empire. It's not just like it was a uh, USSR state like the Baltics or something like that. But you know, the, the, there's a good article by David Stockman uh, pretty recently. I'll send you the link because he's been writing so many great articles. So I'll send you the link for this one in particular. I think it's titled, We Are Not Useful Idiots. And he goes through and breaks down the history of Ukraine and, you know, when it's absorbed different territories, you know, going back to the 1800s and the 1700s and things like that to, you know, kind of understand the actual like deep history of this state. But yeah, anyway, so... After the fall of the USSR, Ukraine becomes its own state. In 1994, I think they end up giving all the old Soviet nuclear weapons back to Russia or having them dismantled because, you know, the, this, is, this is where uh, Chernobyl is, right? You know, the Soviet nuclear program was deep in Ukraine. You know, there's a couple of Soviet leaders that were Ukrainian. I guess that's something that, you know, people don't, always realize is that not every Soviet leader was a Russian. You know, Stalin was a Georgian. 
Khrushchev was a Ukrainian. And so, you know, these dynamics created a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, like these are terrible communists that occupied a massive amount of territories. And, you know, so they, you know, did population, you know, movements and stuff and put Russians in different places. Uh, but other things that happened during the Soviet Union where the Crimean Peninsula was historically Russian, but Khrushchev gave it to the Ukrainians because it's just like, you know, the like little panhandle part of Oklahoma was given to Texas or something like that. Nobody's going to fight a war over that today, right? The Oklahomans aren't going to kill the Texans over that. But, you know, if they're two separate countries with two separate militaries, you know, then these things get complicated. So, during the Soviet Union, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, but then once the Soviet Union fell apart and Ukraine became its own country, then it, the Crimean Peninsula wasn't an issue. And if anybody looks, it's the part of Ukraine that hangs off into the Black Sea. Mm. So in 2014 then, yeah, we'll, we'll skip ahead to 2014, when the U.S., led by Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pye, Joe Biden, the current president, then vice president, orchestrated a coup in Ukraine and removed the democratically elected government, although very corrupt, of uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who, you know, people call him pro-Russian. And I do think, like, to some extent, there's some truth to that. But to, like, call him a Russian puppet would not be correct. Like, he was willing to, like, you know, work with the West and things like that. It's not like he just wanted to make... Ukraine, a pro-Russian state or anything, but he gets overthrown. Uh, the U.S. puts a new government in, and that government is very pro-Western. And one of the things that that government does is it tries to kick Russia out of the naval base it has leased from Ukraine on the Crimean Peninsula. And Russia just says, no, we're just going to take the uh, Crimean Peninsula back. And they did that without anybody dying, by the way. Yeah, And so... After they took it back, they held a referendum. Large majorities voted, you know, like 90-something percent voted to join Russia. Not surprising because there were serious factions in the new government, the new Ukrainian government in Kiev, that uh, were neo-Nazis or very far-right Ukrainian nationalists who, you know, were violent, like the right sector, things like that. You know, the, the kind of people that chant, like, blood and soil and, you know, mean it in the violent kind of like neo-Nazi way. Uh, the, the Azov Battalion guys like will do Hitler salutes. They are ideological descendants of Stefan mm. Bandera, wow. who led uh, the Ukrainian uh, like uh, Nazi movement right during the Second World War. I mean, one important like, thing I guess I should mention about Ukrainian history is that when Germany invaded the USSR during the Second World War, they did so through Ukraine. And so, first of all, the Soviets were absolutely horrible to the Ukrainians and millions of them starved to death because of Soviet policies. And so I'm sure that probably made it a little bit of a a prime situation for some people when the Nazis came in that, well, you know, anybody's better than the Soviets to them. But that also meant that, you know, you had people like becoming in line with the Nazi Nazi ideology. And so, you know, this is only... Like some people's grandparents, I guess, you know, most of the World War II generation is like, you know, starting to die now. So, but like my grandpa was in a a, you know soldier during World War II and things like that, right? So remember, for these people, this this was just and millions died in Ukraine and and in Russia, but millions died, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these the the this means something, right? It's not like because I think Sometimes when I say, oh, there's neo-Nazis in Ukraine, people think, oh, you mean like a guy in the U.S. who likes to hang a Confederate flag off the back of his truck and, 
And no, I'm talking about like actual militias. The Azov Battalion is an actual militia of people who profess the neo-Nazi ideology and will kill for it, right? Like, you know, we are talking about that here. And, you know, this is a very serious thing. And so uh, be, in part because of that government, I think the, the Crimeans were so willing to join uh, the Russian Federation. And then uh, that same those same dynamics sparked the conflict in the Donbass. There were a couple incidents of like people being burned alive in buildings by some of these uh, right-wing ultra-nationalist uh, groups in Ukraine. And so, yeah, two uh, different groups, uh, the, the Donetsk and the, the Hans, uh, declared their independence. And that is generally what's called the Donbass region now. And uh, I, I don't know. You ask me questions if I if I skip through or use like too much lingo at any point. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, so is this what Putin is talking about when he when he mentions denazification? Then, so I guess yes and no. I okay. I don't want to like just agree to that because he is like you know the president of Russia and like if Biden says we're going to go to Yemen and target the terrorists, I know that that means killing innocent civilians too, mm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I do think that there's some of that. But in fairness, yeah, there are, you know, there are Nazis in Ukraine, there are terrorists in Yemen, right? Right. So what is Putin's real motivation for this, do you think? I mean, he's a head of state, so we can't trust what he says. But, but uh, you know, I mean, he must, have, he must have some reason for doing this. Yeah. So I guess just as presented... First, if you just go and turn on any news channel, Fox, CNN, NBC, they'll have somebody on that basically says Putin is doing this uh, for a couple of reasons. He's a megalomaniac. He's just kind of crazy. He's the new Hitler. And literally, you know, territorial expansion in Europe is just what Hitler's do. And that's why Putin is doing it. Or they'll say because uh, Putin is maybe like a very proud Russian nationalist type and he sees Ukraine historically being a part of Russia, which there's, you know, some truthiness to that and everything. And so he's just trying to, like, recreate the Soviet Union. Um, but I, I really don't think that's accurate. You know, Russia isn't like a military powerhouse anymore. I mean, like, they, they have a very large nuclear arsenal. But at the same time, like the 2008 war in Georgia didn't go particularly well for Russia. Uh, this The Syrian war has been uh, pretty expensive for Russia. It's not like the, you know, the U.S. could go and do shock and all in Iraq and then also have a war in Afghanistan and then go to Syria and Libya. And yeah, you know, sometimes like our bomb supplies are on short, but we just made more. There's, there's no question that, you know, we could spend whatever we want on our military and things like that. That's not the case in Russia. You know, their economy is, I think, closer to the size of Italy, right? And so you can't really imagine the Italians waging wars in all these different countries and having the, the logistics and the means to do it. And so, I, I, you know, I think, that's an important factor in all of this. Another one is that this is going to be a massive cost for Russia, and they knew it going in, right? Not just in the lives of their troops, the lives of the Ukrainians, like the moral problems with that. There's pretty large protest in Russia. Uh, thousands of people have been arrested. Far more people are protesting in Russia than in the U.S. have protested against any kind of intervention since, what, the Iraq War? And so, you know, the, these kinds of, of things like are problematic for Putin. There is also the, you know, just like the literal cost of the war, which I think is going to be quite large. Ukraine's a very big uh, country. 
country, it costs a lot of money to move and deploy 100,000 troops, even if they are in a country on your own border. And then, of course, the sanctions that will come along with it. Well, it's going to hurt the world economy in general. And the American people, I think, are, are going to suffer quite a bit from Biden's sanctions. The Russian economy is going to pay too, right? It's going to hurt Russia financially. The Russian markets are down and everything like that. So, yeah, like, like I don't think that Putin is just doing this to do it. Why I think Russia is doing this is that over the past 30 years, since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, NATO has expanded, you know, it reunified Germany first, which remember, if you're looking at this from a Russian position, right, this is the country that invaded Russia during World War II and killed 27 million Russians. Mm. And so the first thing that, that the U.S. did after the fall of the Soviet Union is it reunified Germany and brought Germany into NATO. And then... 10 years later, it started bringing former Warsaw Pact members like Poland into NATO. And now it's, you know, expanded all the way onto Russia's borders in the Balkan states. It includes uh, Romania, uh, North Macedonia, Montenegro, uh, Bulgaria, you, you know. NATO is all over Russia's borders, and they want to add, uh, in particular, Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. And these are two states that hold you know, more historic ties with Russia, but I think more importantly, just strategic, right? Uh, this is Mexico and Canada that we're talking mm -hmm. about adding into into NATO now. And you know, Russia sees that as a security problem. Now, the, the U.S. is going to say, and I'm sure there's some people who say, well, you know, NATO is a defensive alliance and adding Ukraine to NATO just made sure that nobody uh, is going to invade uh, Ukraine. And OK, but has NATO ever fought a defensive war? Nope. Have they fought offensive wars? Yep. Afghanistan, Libya and Kosovo. Yeah. And, you know, Kosovo was in Europe. And so that's a major problem. And then the bigger problem is that NATO membership is more of a weapons program than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you become a NATO member state, that means you get per permanent deployments of U.S. troops uh, within your country, including uh, within dozens of miles of the uh, Russian border. Uh, I think it was in Latvia or Estonia, like three weeks ago, the uh, French, Brits, and Estonians were carrying out military drills 60 miles from Russia's border with tanks and things like that. Now, can you imagine the Russians and the Canadians drilling on the American border like that? Like, you, you know, th this is a legitimate, like, security concern that they're talking about. And so that's an issue. But more importantly, it's the more advanced strategic weapons that get moved in. So the U.S. is building and deploying uh, the Patriot missile batteries into uh, Poland and Romania. And these Patriot missile batteries, uh, they say, are defensive because Patriot missiles are used to shoot down incoming missiles or planes or, you know, things like that. And that is true. However, you can also put Tomahawk missiles in the same launchers that the Patriot missiles use. And so for Russia, it doesn't make it you know, really a mm -hmm. difference. And that's pretty understandable, right? That they're saying if you could slide a Tomahawk missile in there with a nuclear warhead and hit Moscow because it's only a, you know, a couple hundred or thousand miles away, we cannot allow that. You know, it's, it's like a Cuban missile crisis situation. The U.S. can't allow nuclear weapons in Cuba. Russia can't allow, you know, the possibility of nuclear weapons being loaded up into launchers in Eastern Europe. And so I think uh, uh, largely that's what, you know, we're, we're looking at here. And, and a big part of it is the security 
hostage situation, also the training of Ukrainian troops. And I mean, if you look at what's happened since 2014, the U.S. constantly brights. It has given billions of dollars, billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine, despite the fact that 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 the Azov Battalion has since been uh, integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard. Right. And I mean, just now, look at what they're doing in Ukraine. They're giving weapons to anyone, you know, like they're they're lining up citizens and just handing them AKs. Well, who knows who's getting those guns? And, you know, you know, again, from the American perspective, when it's happening thousands of miles away, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But if it was happening on your border, you would be like, oh, there's a lot in here that makes me feel very uncomfortable. And so, um yeah, I, I guess that's the thing that, you know, we didn't respect that Russia has a sphere of influence and Putin is now asserting that Russia does. Oh, wow. That's a lot. So you use the kind of Mexico-Canada analogy. What would it be like just for, for someone like my friend Alex, who may or may not be listening to this later on? You know, I mean, he really only sees it from the point of view of the American State Department. I mean, really. Uh, that's all. That's all he knows. He's a military guy, uh, and so he kind of, despite the fact that he's pretty conservative, like will just basically buy whatever the military says. The U.S. foreign affairs apparatus. So if you kind of like we do with like, imagine if China was building, you know, military bases here, how would we feel about that? What's sort of an analogy for what's going on over there? Yeah. So imagine rather than uh, the, you know, Soviets breaking apart at the end of the Soviet Union, if it was NATO that broke apart, that the Americans, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, it meant lost the Cold War. And since, you know, a reunified Eastern Germany has now uh, become a part of the Warsaw Pact, but they've also included, let's say, uh, like France and Spain, right? And now they have both Mexico and Canada on the path to membership and are carrying out military drills with both countries. They're training up uh, some, you know, people in both like they're training up the cartels in Mexico and they're giving weapons to some white nationalists in uh, Canada and and things like that. You know, maybe some people who are uh, anti-native population or something crazy, Uh, you know, and conducting their own like naval war games in not only the Gulf of Mexico, but say Lake Superior or something like that too. Like this, this would be seen as like, uh, are you guys about to invade? Like why, why else would you be doing this? And if Russia was saying the whole time, like, no, the Warsaw Pact is just a defensive alliance. We haven't (laughs) fought any offensive wars. We're just expanding to increase world security and stability because look, Warsaw Pact countries don't fight against each other. And so adding more into the Warsaw Pact's a good thing. We can't understand what the hell the Americans are complaining about and talking about all the time. You know, you would, again, it's not that I would be sitting here saying I'm anti-war. I wouldn't be going, well, what America needs to do is launch a war into Mexico. That's what I want. You know, we got to fight a war. No, that would be horrific. I would be opposed to that. I'm opposed to what Putin is doing in Ukraine. But at the same time, I would, you know, understand that like, hey, without these Russian provocations, the American invasion would not have happened. So the other day, Tim Pool, who I know you love, did, did a video on, you know, the NATO expansion thing. The fact that, like, other countries that border Russia have been brought into NATO without incident. And so, you know, that excuse doesn't really hold water. What do you think of that? 
Yeah, so it's just like a lack of understanding of, I think, what the historical importance of different countries are to Russia. I guess it's you know kind of hard to maybe make a, a comparison here, but like you know, Latin American or Caribbean countries being being added into the Warsaw Pact wouldn't be as big of a deal. Like you know, Cuba's been aligned with Russia for a long time, but you know, there's a big difference between Cuba and Mexico. Uh, it's the same thing with the Baltic states; they're just historically less important to Russia. Uh, I think they have smaller Russian populations in all those countries anyways. Uh, Strategically, it's just further from Moscow. It's further from Russian populations. It's not that St. Petersburg isn't that far from the Baltics, but I think in general, that's a a part of the issue. Uh, You know, more people live in the southern part of Russia. Well, pretty much on the West, but yeah. And then... um, yeah, so I, I guess that would be, and then just the size of the, the countries, right? Like Estonia doesn't have yeah. a very, very big military. Uh, Ukraine does. They have 150,000, they say. Uh, and then, of course, you know, they've given out another 100,000 weapons. And so, there, you know, there, there's a pretty large fighting force in Ukraine. It's a large country. Georgia's a large country. These countries hold larger borders more strategic borders with Russia. And then also, I think like the last three or four times that Russia has been invaded from Europe, every single one of those invasions has come through Ukraine. And so, you know, not, again, I'm not saying that like, boy, just because you've been invaded through Ukraine before, it means that the U.S. is playing to like pull a ground invasion through Ukraine or anything like that. But if you are looking at this from the Russian historical perspective and you you know, if you're like a right winger, a hawk in Russia, it would be pretty powerful to say like Putin has just sat there while NATO's expanded for thousands of miles onto our own borders. They deploy missile defense systems into Eastern Europe. The Americans have ripped up all of our, you know, Cold War era agreements. That's another big thing. Uh, I'll just mention real quick. The U.S. has destroyed the anti-ballistic missile treaty, uh, which was highly important. That was mm-hmm. during the Bush administration. And once they did that, they started deploying like the Patriot missile systems and things like that. John Bolton was really behind that one. Then the Trump administration, they destroyed the INF treaty, which is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons. So any ground-based nuclear weapons with a range of 500 to 5,500 kilometers was unlimited uh, under that deal. And so uh, that that was really important. Then John Bolton, when he's in the Trump administration, rips that one up. And then uh, there's also the Open Sky Street, which was an open, uh, which was an arms control agreement, but it was a Uh, arms monitoring agreement that the Trump administration also destroyed. The Biden administration had every opportunity to save both the INF, which would have been a little bit more complicated, but also the Open Sky Street absolutely could have saved it and didn't. Now, the New START Treaty does still exist. The Biden administration uh, is... Like, you know, did continue that. It was set to expire in February of 2021. So they did extend that, which was good. Uh, But that's like a bare minimum agreement that just made sure that the U.S. and Russia don't start like massively inflating their nuclear stockpiles. Just to tell you, just to show you how much or little I know about all of this stuff, I thought that the Open Skies Treaty was some environmental thing. uh, so, so I'm glad that you're here letting me know what all this stuff is. Uh, I'm hoping that I'm not the only person in the world who also thinks things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm guessing most people haven't even heard of the Open Skies Treaty, so I guess I've got that one up on them, but I would have been spreading complete mis- or disinformation, whichever one that is. 
so you mentioned earlier Russian financial markets are crashing. Um, that brings to mind this idea that they're going to kick them out of SWIFT. Do you know what SWIFT is and what the consequences of banning Russia from it would be? So, uh, yes and no. Um, I'm not sure on the reporting. I want to look into it a little bit more because it seemed like there may have been a little bit more wiggle room than just Russia being banned for, from SWIFT. And so I just haven't had a chance to look at that yet this morning. It's like the international banking system, right? And so I think most like international major deals get done through SWIFT and banning Russia from it would, you know, ban them from a lot of the, you know, major opportunities on the world market. But I'll I'll uh, try to have something on my show on that this week and uh, talk a little bit more about it because I just, I don't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. But I do know that the Russian markets are down like a huge amount since October, like 10 to 15%. Yeah, I'm guessing Boris Johnson saying he's in favor of banning them from SWIFT might have had something to do with, uh, I mean, in addition, obviously war is always terrible for markets, at least at first. Good for some sectors. So, Do you know anything about the bioweapons labs that uh, apparently Russia was targeting in Ukraine? This is another thing that I want to look into a little bit more before I comment on it too much. I did see, and I, you know, did the you know Wayback page thingy to make sure that the U.S. did remove its mention of them from its State Department uh, website. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, But. so it it does seem like, you know, they existed. Now, mm. did Russia bomb them? Was this a, at all a concern of Russia? I, I I really don't know about that. Cool. Yeah. So what I've read, I think it's from uh, Luongo, the guy that was just on Pete Quinones' show. Yeah. I forget his last name. Um, I think Tom Luongo. Yeah, thank you. I think it was him. And basically what he's saying is that there's just... U.S. bioweapons labs strewn about Ukraine, and uh, we're we're Putin's about to investigate them, and we're gonna we're gonna find all kinds of new stuff. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's a little bit more kooky than I tend to uh, appreciate. Although, you know, it's definitely entertaining to read, and I'm sure he's right. Um, at least sometimes, similar to like Alex Jones or whatever. Well, you know, it, it could be that. Uh, the U.S. was doing like had some kind of like bio research in Ukraine. And, that, you know, I think as will come to light just through other things, uh, you know, the, the line there could be kind of blurry. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we, you know, even see this going back to what the 1950s during the Korean War, where the U.S. was doing bio research and dropping like plague mosquitoes on the North Koreans and things like that. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if that ever did get into like any kind of discussion there, just like, oh, this is medical research or this is defensive mm. and, and things like that's another big one. They'll say, well, you know, Russia is working on it, so we have to work on it. So we know what they could do, but, you know, we're designing weapons too. And so that's, you know, a, a big argument that they usually make mm. on these things. So what's the Zelensky government like? Are they as corrupt as the last government or... Are they pretty on the level or somewhere in between? I mean, I'm guessing that no matter, like Ukraine is a a government that definitely has like a deep state, like, you know, all others. They have Mm. oligarchs that sponsor different political candidates and, you know, the political part, you know, they got their Sheldon Adelson's and everything like that. So, you know, all the Ukrainian governments like have a significant amount of corruption, a international corruption report read will have Ukraine in the bottom 10% 
almost every single time. So yeah, the, the government is corrupt. Zelensky was a TV comedian before becoming president. He There's, a, I believe, a Netflix show. I don't know if it was just on Netflix or if it was Netflix produced, but it was definitely on Netflix at one point. I think if you like, you know, could do the VPN trick uh, to the, you know, Ukraine version, uh, you could probably still get that, that show. Um, he played a Mr. Smith goes to Washington character, but I think it, I didn't watch more than like one episode of it. I don't sure. like reading subtitles, uh, but he kind of not, I don't want to say like he was a Michael Scott, but he, you know, I mean, he wasn't like this, like, you know, great, you know, leader, more of a, like, it was a comedy, right? Yeah. Like he wasn't like perfect and everything. Um, so he ends up being pushed by one of the oligarchs. And I'm, I'm not going to get, uh, say the name because I'm going to push her. But anyways, he, he ends up as president and he does, he gets elected during the middle of the Ukrainian civil war. And part of what he is advocating is ending that, like coming to a solution in the mm. Donbass region. And, uh, and he wins on that ticket. Right. And then pretty quickly after he gets into power, there does seem to be some indication that he is pursuing talks, a relationship with Putin and all of that, but it didn't last too long. And, you know, uh, it very quickly turned into he was just going to like look to join NATO and everything like that, like the typical, uh, very hawkish type rhetoric. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't see too much difference between him and the administration before him of uh, Petro Poroshenko in Ukraine. It should be noted that being a Netflix show is sort of remarkable uh, because the founder of Netflix is Edward Bernays's nephew. Um, so if you listen to if you listen to like Monica Perez and uh, some of the other more conspiracy minded podcasts, then you'll know that Netflix really is um, very plausibly called a tool of propaganda. Uh, given given the given the ties to Bernays and Sigmund Freud and that sort of thing, um, so that's <laughs> well. Can I can I just say something about that real yeah, quick, please? So I mean, there was like four or five years ago, like like four or five really great shows on criminal justice on Netflix, all mm. originally produced uh, documentaries. Like three of them uh, were done by Samantha Culp. Uh, going into like how Exhibit A was one, uh, the confession tapes was one. I can't remember the names of the rest. They like the Innocence Project had a series on there. And I was like, oh man, Netflix is going to be like kind of cool. Like they're going to go and like show like, you know, that, the, <laughs> that, you know, all the CSI that people consumed through my whole childhood, you know, thinking that somebody is going to get a strand of hair and be able to identify the killer is garbage science. A hundred percent garbage science that has likely led thousands of innocent Americans in jail because juries eat up the prosecution when they bring this stuff up and incompetent defense, you know, attorneys don't know and then everything since in like the past like four or five years has been like absolute garbage trash on the political level it's you know all anti-russia pro-war uh they did like a documentary uh series on like we almost had terrorists attacks and the the 9-11 documentary was pretty pro-war and so there's definitely been i don't know it seems to me a real change in direction in the uh, particularly like political documentary scene at Netflix. That's been pretty disappointing. 
Speaking of professionally produced propaganda, um, it's looking like there's quite a bit of it coming out of this. Um, like the the ghost of Kiev, the this, yep. this fighter pilot who's like just flying directly over houses and bombing down Russian planes and all this stuff. Uh, and the 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 those thirteen guys on the island that you know told the told the Russians to fuck off. Like it apparently is turning out that all of this stuff is just fake. Um, do you have any insight on that? And maybe yeah, maybe so- I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off base calling it straight up fake. I don't really know. Yeah, so you know there there may be some truth to it. Like a Ukrainian fighter pilot may have shot down a Russian plane. Like that could have happened. Is there a ghost of Kiev that, as Fox News was saying, was preventing Russia from having control of the skies over Kiev? No, there wasn't. I don't think there is any evidence that any single Ukrainian fighter pilot shot down. Since Russian planes, which is the claim. The Snake Island thing seems to be at least mostly false, if anything. Uh, maybe they did uh, tell the Russians to F off, but 80 of them on that island did surrender. So it's certainly not like, you know, just like one group of men went down fighting or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, the, but here's what that is, right? That that's war propaganda from the Ukrainian government, and understandably so, right? Like, if your country is being invaded and you're the government, you probably do have a role. Like, actually, I think what Zelensky should do is just negotiate with Russia. Like, you know, like not that I'm saying like waving the white flag is always the right thing. Like, avoid a fight at all costs, but this is a fight that his country will lose. They cannot, you know, maybe he has some idea that if they hold out for a few weeks, the cost on Russia will be so high that Russia leaves. But more likely than not, the response of Russia will be escalation, right? And so if they want to, they could carpet bomb Ukraine and they could win this war. No, you know, I mean, there's no question that Russia can win this war if they choose to. And so, you know, I think that the move on Zelensky, not that, you know, it's necessarily the greatest thing in the world, but, you know, to negotiate with Putin and to to come to some kind of solution, because Putin has offered talks. I'll mention that now. And there's, uh, I just read this morning, there's potentially some talks that are going to happen on the border of Belarus and Ukraine between Zelensky and a representative of Putin that could potentially bring an end to this. Putin is asking for Ukraine to uh, adopt a neutral status and agree never to join NATO, which seems you know more more reasonable and likely. Uh, then there is a demand of denazification, which you know could be maybe a little bit of code to like carry out a pogrom or something in Ukraine. Like I don't want to repeat that. Like and be like, yeah, denazification of Ukraine would be great because I don't exactly know what Russia means by that. Mm-hmm. If he actually just means like we want to get rid of the Nazis, like the the, the violent Azov battalion. Okay, that's, that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, but reasonable. you know, if he's just talking about like anybody in Ukraine who like expressed like you know sympathies for Ukrainian state, and you know, there's a spectrum, right? And like somewhere, you know, this could very easily turn into killing innocent people with anti-Russian opinions, right? You and, mean to, you mean to say that that there are people who might call people Nazis who aren't actually Nazis? Yeah, even oh, in places wow. where there are actually Nazis, wow. right? Um, <laughs> And so, but then the other condition would be a demilitarization of Ukraine. And it just depends on what he means by that, I think. Mm. If he means that Ukraine stops accepting any NATO weapons, that seems pretty reasonable. And then maybe some caps on like, you know, what the Ukrainian armed forces 
like, you know, maybe no developing like intermediate range weapons or things like that. You know, th- these are things that that I don't think are absurd to agree to. Now, if he's saying that Ukraine can't have a military at all, that that does seem like a seem like terms that Ukraine is less likely to agree sure. to. And in that case, you know, Putin does seem pretty unreasonable, maybe on that point. But you know, we'll we'll see how these negotiations progress, assuming uh, that they happen. But yeah, so I do think that there is some role for the Ukrainian government, though, you know, to come up with this war propaganda and keep the, like, the people rallied and things like that. You know, if you're just sitting there saying, well, you know, we're, we're pretty much losing territory at a slow pace, then it might encourage your troops to surrender. So as commander in chief, you probably don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple other things I had on the list that I'm going to talk about on my show if you want me to go through on, on yeah, things that it. I think might be false narratives. So there's this video that people... People have seen there's two different angles of it, but the the close up angle is the one that most people have seen. It's a a tank in the streets of Kiev that runs over a car. Now, the first thing I'll mention is that completely inexplicably to me, the guy in the car is alive. Like you could see afterwards, they have video. People run out and pull this guy out of the car. I. It's fantastic. It makes me really happy that that guy's alive. I don't understand it. And I don't think it necessarily takes away from, you know, the fact that the tank drove over the car is absolutely horrific in a war crime, right? Like the one in a million that that tank goes over the car in a way that that guy lives shouldn't excuse the fact that like he probably would have died in almost any other circumstance, right? Um, So that's uh, one to mention that. But everybody said that that was a Russian. Now, it's pretty clear, I think, that that wasn't a Russian vehicle. I think what the Ukrainians claim is that a Russian saboteur stole that vehicle and ran over a Ukra- uh, uh, Ukrainian civilian in a car. I think there's a lot of evidence to prove that that is not yet out. And the biggest problem is, is that there's really no evidence that there was Russian forces in Kiev at that time. And so a great uh, Middle Eastern war reporter, Elijah Manier, wrote a Twitter thread on it. I, I suggest everybody follow Elijah for his Middle East coverage anyways, but uh, this particular thread on that car is important. And it's very possible that, you know, a tank operator ran over that car. Now, the other thing that I want to mention on that, that people don't seem to understand is you don't drive a tank like you drive a car. It's not that easy. And so, you know, a lot of people are point out that it's very likely that it was an accident that maybe even the like car and the tank were trying to avoid each other and just how hard it is to like turn rotate and everything a tank that is far more likely that that tank accidentally ran over that car and that feels trying to hit that car the operator would had a hell of a time doing it you know what i mean uh and there was some from the other video not the viral one that everybody sees but there's another like a little bit further away, more zoomed out video, you could see that there's combat going on too. And so it's very likely that, you know, the tank and the car may not have even been reacting to to each other really, but the combat going on down the street that the tank was, I I believe, driving into and the car was fleeing from. Um, Then there's this uh, video of a missile that hit a uh, building in Kiev. No doubt that a missile hit a building in Kiev absolutely happened. The question is, is that what kind of missile hit that building? And then Aaron Mate, who's an absolutely fantastic reporter on Russiagate, uh, has a whole Twitter thread on why he thinks that it could have possibly been a Ukrainian uh, anti-aircraft missile that actually ended up uh, hitting that building and not a Russian missile. Now, there's two points on that. In a sense, 
Putin is still responsible for the missile hitting that building, right? Because had he not launched the war, had his planes or missiles not been in the sky, Ukraine would have never activated its anti-aircraft systems, and that missile would have never hit that building. So I do still put the blame on Putin. However, there is a difference between like what Israel does in Gaza, intentionally dropping apartment buildings, and an errant anti-aircraft missile hitting an apartment building, right? Like just... And then the same thing, there's uh, one of the more famous shots and apparently like three people were seriously injured, civilians, including one woman critically, of a uh, uh, apartment building that was hit. Well, it apparently was a jet, uh, they say a Russian jet, but a jet was hit by some kind of missile in the sky and crashed into it. Again, you know, Putin launched this war, so he is responsible for the death that comes from this battle. However, there is a difference, right, when we're talking and reporting about it from Putin targeted this apartment building with a missile to, you know, some, you know, as a part of the battle, some debris fell and, you know, injured some people in this building, right? And, and there's just no uh, nuance there and no discussion on that. And then the last one I have is there was reports I believe I have a screenshot on my phone. I, I I was taking a whole bunch of video of thoughts through the day just of all the ridiculous things they were doing. But they claimed that Russia Russian Marines were landing on the beaches of Odessa, and that just turned out to be not true whatsoever. Just completely reporting falsehoods? Or like, is there just some kind of truth? Yeah, there? it's it's unclear. I mean, they do say like, you know, report. They land in the beaches oh. of Odessa or things okay. like that. But, you know, when it's on TV and you talk about it for five minutes, you're kind of telling people that you think it's happening. And mm. it's not just like, uh, we really don't know. And you, that is one thing I feel like, you know, just from watching mainstream media and why I'm so happy that uh, most of the time I just spend my time listening to podcasts because, you know, <laughs> podcast hosts really do say like, hey, I don't know. This is what's being reported. Mm. But obviously, I'm some guy in America who doesn't know. But when it's, you know, CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and they got all the fancy graphics and they got a reporter who's sitting in some hotel in uh, Kiev and he's saying that the Russians are landing on the Ukrainian beaches or something like that, you know, all this credibility and things, even if he does say, well, you know, we don't know for sure. So, yeah, I, I do think that's like, you know, one of the real problems the way the U.S. media is reporting things is they do say, well, we're not sure. But because of how much credibility that they have with such a large percentage of the American population, it's, you know, not everybody, but the people who trust what the mainstream media says, believe whatever comes on their TV. And so when they're saying that, hey, there's this ghost of Kiev and that there's these this snake island and look at this great Ukrainian resistance as happening, they are trying to give a specific message to the Americans. And right now that message is not, I want to be, this is a point I want to make actually. Um, I don't think they want to send troops to Ukraine. Biden has Biden is among the 74% of Americans who doesn't want that to yeah. happen, yep. right? So saying that no troops in Ukraine, it, it's, you know, good to say, but at the same time, it's, I don't think there's any possibility of that happening. They're talking about trying to create a new fly zone, no fly zone over Ukraine, which would mean like putting our, I guess, using maybe some American anti-aircraft systems in Eastern Europe to try to establish that. Or they're talking about giving Ukraine arms. And legally, if you give a combatant in a war arms, that makes you a part of that war. So, yeah, I guess bringing up Biden, um, 
Did he become more dovish like after his son died in Iraq? Or do you think that he also would have been opposed to sending in troops to Ukraine, you know, if that hadn't happened? I guess my my interpretation has been the second. I uh, haven't exactly been happy that our president's this, you know, what, 79-year-old old-ass man. Yeah. But the fact that he is a 79-year-old man means that, you know, for the majority of his life, when he looked at the map, Ukraine was deep within the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. That he was, uh, you know, well within the thinking of the Cold War analysts like George Kennan, uh, you know, people, you know, the the designers of the Cold War strategy that said that NATO expansion was a bad idea, and so not that Biden is necessarily opposed to NATO expansion or anything like that, but I do think he understands more so than uh, some of the younger people in government, Jake Sullivan, Annie Blinken, Victoria Newland, exactly what we're talking about here in like the the historical context and what this really means, and so that that's been my sense on the Biden issue, and remember. Remember when Obama initially ran for president, uh, both in 08 and then in uh, 12 against uh, Mitt Romney, you know, they mocked the Republicans for being too hawkish against uh, yeah. Russia. You're, yeah. I mean, the famous line from Obama was, uh, you know, to Mitt Romney, the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. Well, now we have the, the Democrats are even more rabid on this issue, maybe mm-hmm. minus Biden, kind of. How did it happen that Hunter Biden got so entangled in Ukrainian like high level energy business. Yeah, so after the the coup in 2014, the US installs a government uh that you if you have any questions about it, you could literally hear a phone call of US uh diplomats or you know they call themselves diplomats officials right. <laughs> uh, Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt. Uh, discussing that, you know, they're carrying out this coup. They, you know, go through a, a list of Ukrainian names and they say, this person's going to be this pl- place, this person's going to be that place. The people end up exactly where they say they are. But most importantly, on that call, she says that she'll, uh, I think, wrap in or something the vice president, Joe Biden at the time, to midwife the thing. And so what she's arguing or what she's saying there is that Joe Biden is really in charge of the Ukraine policy, right? Mm. And so then once the uh, Americans, you know, have their coup in Ukraine and the new government in Ukraine is dependent on their American benefactors, then all these Ukrainian companies decide that they need to make sure that they have a good standing with the U.S. government. How do you get good standing with the U.S. government? Well, a pretty good way is to hire the vice president's son, especially when the vice president has a major role in the Ukraine. Uh, you know what I mean? So, it, like, you know, maybe people will say, come on, they wouldn't hire uh, Kamala Harris's daughter or something. I don't know if she has kids anyways. Anyway, but I'm saying, uh, but yeah, but Joe Biden was heavily involved in the foreign policy portfolio there. Like, this was a very targeted move. And there is some evidence from uh, the, the emails that Hunter's Biden laptop emails that came out uh, that, you know, there was meetings between Biden or attempted meetings between Biden and uh, Ukrainian energy leaders uh, set up by Hunter Biden through this deal. And then famously, Joe Biden, I think this is in 2016, threatened to fire the uh, prosecutor. But like, I think equivalent to attorney general, but he was uh, investigating Burisma, which is a company that Hunter Biden worked for. Now, 
the the Hawks will tell you that no, 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 Kyle, that they were done investigating Barisma at that point. That's not true. There's a great series on it at Consortium News going into very much detail how there were open investigations against Barisma when Joe Biden was calling the Ukrainians and saying, "Hey, if you want access to this one mil one billion dollars in IMF funds." then you will fire this prosecutor. And, you know, he may say that there were other reasons for that. It may even be true, but it's still a massive conflict of interest. So do you think, um, like, is the Donbass still gunning for independence? Were they ever? And do you think that that might be some sort of aim for Putin? Either that or, or, or complete annexation? Or am I completely off base and just talking retarded because I don't know what's going on? I really don't, I guess I don't know. There's so many possibilities here. I guess in my mind, it would seem that maybe Putin would want more states between himself and NATO. And so to leave Ukraine as an independent, neutral state and then have the Donbass as its own little two separate states uh, may be advantageous just, you know, to have like more political entities between yourself and NATO. But at the same time, if he does go with annexation of any or, or all of this, it won't be surprising. Um, and, and then I guess it really depends on what he decides to do in Ukraine. If, you know, his move is just a demand that they demilitarize and agree not to join NATO, but leaves the Zelensky government in charge of Kiev, I mean, that's uh, that's that's not all that major, I guess, uh, of a decision versus if he decides that Zelensky is stepping down, we're putting in this pro-Russian government, and that government is going to take like the next four years to make sure that any election that comes in place in the future uh, has a, a pro-Russian result. And I think that's a, a very possible outcome to all this too. However, I guess if uh, Putin does plan to keep Ukraine as a independent-ish country um, that, you know, does have its own elections, then the Donbass maybe would remain a part of Ukraine just because there's a huge portion of the people in that area that would be favorable to the Russian ticket, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know what I mean? Like, if like the Democrats want California to secede, well, the California Democrats might support that, but the New York Democrats might have some like existential dread about it, right? Because that's like a major portion of their American voting bloc. And so uh, there, there's, I think, some of those dynamics too uh, that, you know, are at play here that I don't necessarily understand. Also, the historic Donbass is, I think, quite a bit larger than what was established as the line of control, uh, it, you know, of the two sides. And I'm not exactly sure what Putin plans to do, if he's going to keep the Donbass as it has been over the past eight years, or if he plans to make it the historic Donbass and give them their own states there. Hmm. All right. Uh, so I guess to kind of close it out, um, and I'll give you kind of the final word if you have anything else to add, but uh, I am curious, how do we find reputable and reliable sources of information on this? Um, you know, obviously the mainstream press is going to give us the State Department spin on it. And I'm guessing that RT is going to give us something like Putin's spin on it. Um, are there... Are there and, and, you know, I mean, left and right are going to have their own spins as well. Are there are there places where we can go that are going to give us more or less accurate information? 
um, antiwar.com, the Libertarian Institute. I could stand by that because it, it it's me. You know what I mean? Uh, it, you can like read me writing up things on this, and I do. Uh, I'm very careful. I, I my priority isn't to be the first person that writes something mm-hmm. on it. it. It's to write it right. The you know what I mean, and have it right for my listeners the first time, and also to like give the alternative possibilities and not just to present you know the the viewpoint that like most benefits the libertarian philosophy. I mean. Yeah, like I do cover, you know, news that's like most interesting to libertarians. But at the same time, it's not that, you know, I'm writing, oh, this isn't a big deal at all. And there's nothing to worry about, you know, like Putin isn't a bad guy or anything like, no, like this is bad. Like this, you know, there are war crimes being committed in uh, Ukraine, you know, civilians are being killed. Um, You know, it's absolutely horrific. At the same time, it's, you know, there is a larger context here, right? And this isn't Iraq or Yemen or Syria, even with the, you know, the campaigns that the U.S. has carried out against like Fallujah and Raqqa, uh, what the Saudis have done to Sanaa, uh, that, you know, it just, it it really doesn't compare. Not yet, at least. I I mean, you know, in a week from now, I could just be looking at a, a landscape of Kiev that is absolutely horrifying. With tens or hundreds of thousands of people dead. But there is certainly a bias in our media that at times has uh, come out as explicit that, you know, they are upset that this time that civilized people are being killed, right? That the lives in Baghdad don't matter because those people are uncivilized, which really just means brown, right? But. Yeah. For, for for what they're actually saying, that's it. I mean, there was a guy on BBC they were interviewing that said, you know, it's terrible that blonde-haired, blue-eyed people are killing each other, right? That's like that. That's kind of the reason that this is getting covered as it is, like, right? Someone said that unironically. Yeah, no, but yeah, I, oh, I, I told I told you they're they're actual Nazis in Ukraine, right? Like, yeah, you know, th- like they're actually upset that Aryans are killing each other sure. because you yeah. know they believe in superiority of the Aryan race, right? Like, this isn't. So I guess it's surprising that somebody put it on the BBC that that you know that didn't get through the filters or something. But uh, but you know there there are people like you know just uh, I, I saw a story of like some lady she lives with her mom who's eighty two and has a bad hip and her son who's like fourteen and has autism he can't go in the bomb shelters and she can't walk down the stairs and those people are probably going to be killed by Putin's war in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the, the U.S. media leaves out all the important context, right? Putin gives an hour-long speech about why this is happening and spends like 45 minutes of it explaining everything that I've talked about in this show about like NATO aggression, American, uh, you know, what uh, the expansion of NATO and everything like this and why Russia has legitimate security concerns and then spends a few minutes, which I think were probably more directed at his domestic audience saying things like Russia has a historic role here and things like that, right? This is nothing different than, you know, uh, the U.S. saying that we have to respond here because we have, uh, you know, democratic duties to defend, you know, innocent people around the world or things like that. That's, you know, it, it was for domestic consumption. That's what they're pushing is that, oh, you know, Putin just is, is this Stalin wannabe who wants to recreate the USSR. Hell, even Biden said that. And so, you know, there's just so much Biden in the mainstream media, but if you want news on it, 
Um, again, antiwar.com, the Libertarian Institute. Uh, at the Institute, me and Will Porter have been covering it every day. We're, again, very careful. We're not like, you know, trying to be first or anything like that. We're just trying to get this right so that libertarians can read this and know what's happening. Um, and then... Uh, Twitter's not a bad source, although you got even with videos, you got to be careful. Some of the mm. videos of the Ghost of Kiev were from a fight simulator video game. Uh, so many videos that they're allegedly showing from the Donbass are, you know, from 2014, 2015, which is interesting, but, you know, isn't the same thing as what the media is presenting it as. Even like a lot of these videos that make it onto Fox News and CNN and things end up turning out to not be real or not to show what they're, they're claiming to show. Live streams are somewhat more useful, I find. Uh, you can usually find them on like YouTube and Facebook and things like people have cameras set up around Kiev mm -hmm. and stuff. And at least then, you know, like you could like hear when there's gunfire going on or, or things like that. And, and like you have a little bit of an idea. Uh, live UA Maps is a pretty good resource, although it's been so used that the website's been down quite a bit. But if you follow their Twitter, they've been a little bit uh, pro-Ukrainian, I, I think, through this. But overall, uh, what the information that they put out it, it, on everything, like, don't just go for Ukraine. Any conflict, you go that side. But uh, most of the information they put out is uh, pretty solid. Or if not, they at least, like, have the original source. And so you could, like, go and see, like, this is what the Ukraine Ministry of Defense is saying, right? Like, you could, like, go right to the, the their page. And then one thing that's extremely useful, people really don't like doing it, but if you do go to like uh, the Kremlin website, the white, uh, the DOD, uh, watch what John Kirby is saying. He's the DOD spokesperson. I find Jen Psaki to be a little bit less helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like particularly the Pentagon and the State Department spokespersons, Kirby and Price, are maybe a little bit worse at their jobs, which makes them a little bit more informative. <laughs> <laughs> you know how that works? Yeah. Uh, where, where Saki just like gets a little bit more aggressive, but she doesn't ever give anything away. Yeah. Uh, Kirby gives stuff away, like important information. And so, yeah, the, I guess that would be my recommendation, but keep an eye on antiwar.com. Uh, Dave DeCamp, Jason Ditz, Eric Garris are constantly updating that site right now. Uh, I got it. I got to catch up and read more, but it, it looks like we're into uh, troublesome territory here with uh, Russia saying that they feel the need to, uh, you know, ready some of their nuclear deterrence. I mean, this is this is this is real, real dangerous stuff that we're getting into here. It means absolutely nothing to America. Right. Like it, it's kind of sad. You know what's going on in Ukraine. It's you know far more nuanced than the media is presenting it as. So I'm not you know I don't want to present it as like just this massive one sided tragedy as the media is saying. But like there is a war going on. I you know in, in a lot of ways it's fair to say that it was a war of choice on the the Russian part. But there there there's a massive a massive thirty year set of actions by the Americans that created this situation. And it was predictable that this was like, it's not like uh, George Kennan wasn't writing, you know, it's not like uh, all these, you know, Cold War analysts haven't been writing for the past 20 years saying like, hey, eventually NATO expansion is going to provoke Russia to take mm -hmm. an action. And then we're going to be in a whole new uh, nuclear arms cold war again. And, you know, one of the most messed up parts about all this, and one of the reasons I, I do think so much of this is America's fault, is we never had any intention of defending Ukraine. Never. Wasn't going to happen. Can't happen. You know, if the U.S. really wanted to take 
Mexico City. And, you know, the, the counter scenario that I have before it happened where they want to make them a, a NATO state, there's nothing that Russia could do short of nuking the United States, right? Like we could nuke Russia, right. but it's just too close to the United States. We would constantly be able to send more ships, more weapons, more troops that there's, you know, I'm sure more sympathies with the U.S. and Russia and Mexico. And, and so all these things over time uh, eventually means that, you know, the, there's nothing that the U.S. could do in Ukraine. There's nothing that... Um, or Russia could have done in Mexico, and that, you, that what the responsible thing for Biden to do the whole time was to make this very loud, very clear, particularly to the Ukrainians. You know, it seemed like they were kind of sitting there, kind of thinking that somebody was going to come to their defense or their aid. It ain't going to happen, right? They, they were never going to join NATO, but having them on the path to NATO membership was a threat to Russia, right? Even if it wasn't actually going to happen, the U.S., was treating Ukraine more and more like a de facto NATO member. Biden was saying that we'll defend Ukraine's territorial integrity. And Putin made it very clear that the U.S. had no intention of ever doing that. And uh, yeah, so I think that, that that about hits everything I want to say. I got a little tangential at the end, but I think that got it all. Great. Thank you so much, Kyle. Uh, did you want to drop any more any more links? You mentioned your Twitter, Kyle Anzalone underscore anywhere.com, Libertarian Institute. Anything else? Now, I host the Conflicts of Interest podcast, Connor Freeman and Will Porter, at least three shows a week lately. It's been a lot more just because there's so much going on. Uh, but yeah, subscribe to the show, YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey. And uh, it's on the Libertarian Institute, all podcast feeds. So if you really like foreign policy and want to listen to my show, Scott's show, and a few other great ones, check that out as well. Cool. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. 